Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I want to welcome you to Episode 7 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. So far, over the course of the past several episodes, we've accomplished several things. First, I've shown a mathematical problem with Einstein's derivation. This was covered in Episode 2, and again in my Storrs conference presentation. And while there are other mathematical ways to challenge Einstein's derivation, as presented by some of the material on my website, I like the material in the podcast and the Storrs presentation best, mostly because it uses a straightforward mathematical approach of algebraic substitution to highlight the problem in Einstein's derivation. I've started to receive some feedback on this approach. While everyone I've corresponded with agrees that the four statements in Einstein's Xi derivation do not yield the same results, not everyone agrees that Einstein is subject to the rules of algebra. I don't agree with the perspective that Einstein is above the rules of algebra, which is what some people want to argue. But I do have to admit it is one way to reconcile the conflict that I create through the presentation. The second thing I've done was to introduce a new model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. While we haven't looked at the math behind this model yet, we have started looking at what makes this model conceptually different than Einstein's theory. And third, I've presented a high-level review of one of the foundational experiments, the Michelson and Morley experiment, to see how their experiment might be analyzed to produce a re result of 30 kilometers per second. This is exciting because it's the experimenter's expected result, and it agrees with the predicted results of the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. Today, we're going to revisit the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems and start to take a look at the math behind the model. Don't worry, we're not going to dive into partial differential equations. In fact, I hope that you'll get the basic concepts without having to resort to memorizing any equations. I hope that by the end of today's episode, not only will you have an understanding of what Xi and Tau are in my model, but you'll be able to derive them for yourself. I also hope that you'll have a better understanding of Einstein's derivation. So today, I will introduce you to a new mathematical interpretation of Xi and Tau, one that will differ from what you've learned about Einstein's theory, but one that I think is practical and conforms to the experimental evidence, such as the Michelson and Morley experiment. But before we begin, I want to share the approach to learning math that I learned in calculus. I was fortunate enough to have the same professor for calculus for two out of the three semesters. He had a very unique approach to teaching. He didn't want us to memorize equations. Rather, he would begin each session by telling us what he wanted us to learn. And then he would start with the phrase, let's draw a picture. His belief was that if we could remember how to draw a picture of whatever it was we were trying to solve, we would forever be able to derive the equations and then we could solve the problem. He felt that if we simply memorized equations, they'd be forgotten by the end of the summer. But if we could remember the picture, and if we could remember enough to derive the equation, it would be with us forever. This was a lesson I've kept with me since college and one that I hope you'll remember today because we're going to draw some pictures. Actually, I've already drawn the pictures. Since we're going to talk about math today, I've prepared a set of drawings to aid in our conversation. And you'll find them on the website at blog.relativitychallenge.com. 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com under episode 7. Now, at some point in the future, I may reorganize the website. And if that happens, I'll do my best to make sure you're able to easily find the file associated with today's show. So, if you haven't done so already, I'm going to ask that you pause and download the PDF associated with Episode 7 of the podcast. I'd like to start today by reminding you of the definitions of a basic coordinate system, a complete coordinate system, and an incomplete coordinate system. A basic coordinate system is something we measure. It can be measured along one, two, or three dimensions. When discussing the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems, we consider three additional features or characteristics. First, we investigate the interaction between two systems, where one system is moving with respect to another system. And this is illustrated in figure one in the PDF. Second, there are two points in a moving system between which an object oscillates. And I'm gonna use the term object loosely in today's show. As an example, if a pole is at the rear and another is at the front of the moving system, we will put an object into motion from the rear pole to the front pole and then back to the rear pole again. Often, this behavior repeats indefinitely. As we'll discuss later, we can express this repeating behavior or oscillation in terms of frequency. Third, there is some sort of medium through which or on which the object travels. Complete coordinate systems and incomplete coordinate systems both build upon this basic coordinate system. And this brings us to a key difference between a complete and an incomplete coordinate system. In a complete coordinate system, the object travels on or through a medium that is in motion with and traveling at the same velocity as the moving system. In an incomplete coordinate system, the oscillating object travels on or through a medium that is not moving with or traveling at the same velocity as the moving system. In fact, for our discussion today, it travels on or through a medium that is moving at the same velocity as the stationary or reference system. In other words, you can think of it as not moving. Before I explain the math behind complete and incomplete coordinate systems using a specific example, I want to remind you that the point of giving examples is to help you understand the concepts behind the model. If you get these concepts, then at a base level, you will understand the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems. The examples are not the model, but a way of helping you understanding the underlying characteristics and behaviors of the model. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, the model helps us understand things that might be occurring in reality. But again, the model is not reality. So let's take a look at figure two. In this example, the ground is the stationary or reference system. The bus, which is X prime meters in length, is the moving system. The poles at the rear and front of the bus are the points that the oscillating object will travel between. The object we're going to put in motion is a dog. The medium for the reference system is the street, while the medium for the moving system is the aisle of the bus. For clarity, I've added two people to the picture, a bus driver and a pedestrian. So why are they important? 
They're important to remind us of the various points of view we have to consider when exploring our model. It's important not to lose sight of the fact that some answers will be given with respect to the measurement markings on the street, while other measurements will be given with respect to the measurement markings inside of the bus. So let's begin by marking a big zero on the ground and placing the back of the bus at this point. This way, when we start our derivation, both origins coincide at zero. Let's also put the dogs there too. For now, we're gonna leave the bus parked. While the back of the bus is at the origin, the front of the bus is located x prime meters from the origin. Again, this point in the bus lines up with the same mark in the street. Now we have to get a set of baseline measurements. In order to do this, we're gonna leave the bus parked, but we're going to put the dogs in motion. They both start at the same time and run at velocity w from the rear of the bus to the front. This is shown in figure three, which also shows them running from the front back towards the rear. As you can see, there are several equations that tell us how far the dogs ha have run and how long it takes them. You'll see that both dogs reach the front at the same time, and on their return, they, re they reach the rear at the same time. Importantly, you'll also see that if you take their total distance run and divide it by two, you'll get one half of the distance they've run. Notice how this distance coincides with the location of the front of the bus. Both the bus driver and the pedestrian observe the same thing and get the exact same measurements. This is our baseline set of measurements for both a complete and an incomplete coordinate system. But as I've mentioned before, things get interesting when the bus is in motion with respect to the ground. First, we'll consider the complete coordinate system, or the case where the dog is in the bus. What makes this a complete coordinate system is that the dog is moving on a medium, in this case, the aisle of the bus, which is in motion with the moving system. This is illustrated in figure four. Now, ignoring the effects of acceleration for the moment, it still takes the dog the exact same amount of time to travel between the poles as when the bus was stationary. From the bus driver's perspective, nothing has changed. However, from the pedestrian's perspective, something is different. What's changed is that the dog appears to be running faster or slower as measured by the marks on the ground, depending on whether the dog is moving towards the front of the bus or towards the rear of the bus. And when the dog reaches the front of the bus, it won't be at the mark X prime as it's measured on the ground. And when it gets back to the rear of the bus, it won't be at the origin as measured at the ground. However, it will take the dog the same amount of time to move between the front pole and the rear pole of the bus as it did when the bus was stationary. And this is true whether time is measured from the bus driver's perspective or from the pedestrian's perspective. One key thing I'd like you to notice about a complete coordinate system is that from the bus driver's perspective, the dog has traveled the same distance in both directions, and it takes the same amount of time. In addition, when the dog has traveled one half of its total round trip distance, it is at the front of the bus. For the most part, the bus driver doesn't care about where the dog is with respect to the ground, only with respect to the bus. 
These facts are characteristic to a complete coordinate system, but also notice that the dog can do what we've asked it to do regardless of how fast the bus is moving. So in a complete coordinate system, the velocity of the bus isn't limited and the dog is able to do what we've asked it to do. Now I'd like to take a look at an incomplete coordinate system. What makes this an incomplete coordinate system is that we're still going to ask the dog to do the same thing, which is to oscillate between the front and the rear of the bus, but the dog is going to travel along the ground. And as I've mentioned previously, the ground is the medium associated with the stationary or reference system. Since the dog is traveling along the ground, we're going to observe things from the perspective of the pedestrian who is standing outside of the bus. Now look at figure five. Notice that when the bus is in motion, the dog has to travel further to reach the front of the bus, as compared to when the bus was stationary, because the front of the bus is moving away from him. And the time it takes to make this journey, of course, takes longer. Now, when the dog runs in the other direction, he runs a shorter distance as compared to when the bus was stationary, because the rear of the bus is approaching him. Likewise, it takes him a shorter amount of time to make this journey. So, there are a few things I want to bring to your attention with an incomplete coordinate system. First, when the dog has run one half of his round trip distance, he hasn't yet made it to the front of the bus. Remember, it takes him longer to get to the front of the bus than it does for him to get to the rear of the bus. Because they're not the same distance, when, he gets, when he's run half of his total distance, he hasn't quite made it to the front. Second, the dog will only be able to make a round trip journey when the bus goes slower than the dog can run. If the bus matches or exceeds the dog's velocity, the dog will never make it to the front of the bus and he won't be able to do what we've asked him to do. But it's the equations for an incomplete coordinate system that are interesting and what we're going to dive into today. Notice that we know how long it takes the dog to travel from the rear to the front. And we also know how long it takes the dog to travel from the front to the rear. Now, we can multiply these times by the dog's velocity to find the total distance that it's run. We simply divide these numbers by two, either the total time or the total length, to find the equations for one-half the distance or one-half the time. These equations are presented in figure six. I'm going to name them xi and tau, and you'll see why in just a moment. But more importantly, I've shown you one of the ways that you can derive these values, which is to add the longer length or time to the shorter length or time and divide by two. But the question is, is this the only way to find these values? And the answer to that question is no. There are at least two other ways. And I'm going to illustrate these in figure seven. Notice that both distances have something in common. They're both at least as long as the shorter length. So we're gonna break the longer line into two parts, one that is equal to the shorter line and one that represents the remainder. Now we're gonna call the remainder the tail and the amount that uh, equal the shorter line, we're gonna call that the head. Let's begin by taking the shorter line 
and the head of the longer line. This way, we have two equal line segments. Now, one thing that's true is that if we have two equal line segments and then we add equal amounts to each segment, they will still be equal. So the question is, how much do we add? And here's where the tail comes in handy. So if you take the tail and divide it by two, you add and you can add one half to the head and the other half to the shorter line. Both lines are still equal because you've added an equal amount. But notice what we've done. We have found the amount that represents one half the length or one half the time. What's interesting here is that this means we can find the equations for one half the length or time by subtracting one half the tail from the longer line or by adding one half the tail to the shorter line. And this is illustrated in figure seven. Now to find the tail, we simply subtract the shorter line from the longer line. And then to find one half this value, we divide by two. Now with respect to time, this value happens to be v times x prime divided by the entire quantity of w squared minus v squared. So this should give a little bit of meaning to this expression in Einstein's tau equation that he provides in his 1905 paper. Although recognize that Einstein uses c as one of his variables instead of w. The nice thing about this diagram is that you get a clear and graphical meaning of tau as well as its component equation, vx prime divided by w squared minus v squared. The latter of which is something I have not seen discussed by the special relativity community. And while they will say that this is the adjustment to time, I haven't seen their explanation presented in a graphical manner as we've just walked through here. Now, in Einstein's psi derivation, what he does do is define tau by taking the length of the longer line and then he subtracts one half of the tail. This gives us a specific meaning as to what tau represents because he simply takes this value and multiplies it by the velocity, c. In my model, tau is simply the amount of time to cover this distance in much the same way Einstein treated it in his psi derivation. In other words, tau is simply xi divided by the velocity of the oscillating object. However, as I've pointed out in earlier episodes, Einstein incorrectly simplified tau and produced an incorrect equation. And this anomaly is found by using one of the mathematical methods discussed previously in this series or on my website. So there's a lot of material to think about in today's episode. But I invite you to listen to the material until you're comfortable with it. Then I invite you to relook at Einstein's work. You'll see in section one of his paper, he outlines the concept of simultaneity. Basically, he outlines the behaviors of what I call a complete coordinate system. Then in section two, he begins to talk about the math involved. From my perspective, he's talking about the math of an incomplete coordinate system. And then in section three, he derives the equations.
And you'll see that I agree with Einstein's unnormalized equations for the x, y, and z transformations. But where we differ is in the numerator of the time equation, as well as in the interpretation of the meaning of each of the equations. Not only do I have a measurement for the amount of time that the moving system has been in motion, I also have time equations for each of the axes. This means I end up with four time equations in my model. Try not to think of the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems as simply an extension to Einstein's theory. While the extensions to the postulates are relatively straightforward, the underlying interpretations and models are completely different. So while the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems is useful for understanding the relative movement of coordinate systems, it is particularly useful when talking about things represented by frequency. This is why it can be effectively applied to understanding experiments such as the Michelson and Morley experiment or the Ives-Stillwell experiment. To me, this is a very exciting prospect to have a model that explains the world in a way that remains consistent with the experimental evidence, but makes sense from a conceptual point of view, and may even agree with the views of quantum mechanics. These equations are particularly useful for oscillating phenomena such as radio or light waves. And this is why my model has three types of transformation equations, whereas Einstein's had two. You'll find this material covered in more detail in my Understanding Time paper. You might also want to look at my original paper uh, where I cover complete and inc incomplete coordinate systems as well. You'll find both papers in the Papers section of my website, www.relativitychallenge.com. So this brings us to the conclusion of today's show. There's a lot of material in today's show, but I hope that it's still clear and relatively easy to understand. I want to thank each of you who listened to today's show. I'm happy to see the number of subscribers and downloaders increasing. As always, your feedback and comments and questions are welcome, and I'd like to get your help in spreading the word, so please tell others about the podcast and help get the message out. As always, I look forward to hearing from you. You can reach me at email at relativitychallenge.com. Today's music was provided by Black Lab from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You'll find them at music.podshow.com. This show is copyright 2007 by Stephen Bryant and relativitychallenge.com. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you'll return again next time. Until then, be well. <laughs>